Hi, it's me, Ben Blacker. The Nerdist Comics panel is back, but it's not part of this feed anymore. You're welcome, comics haters. Uh, it's got its own feed, and you can find it if you look for it on iTunes. Look up Nerdist Comics panel. Go to my Tumblr, writerspanel.tumblr.com. Follow me on Twitter. Uh, new episodes will come out every Wednesday, New Comics Day. And uh, it's a slightly different format, but mostly the same, with lots of old friends, lots of new friends, lots of fun conversations. And it looks like we'll be running at least until the end of the year every Wednesday. So please check that out. And as ever, if you enjoy it, please leave a review on iTunes. Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers' Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 400 writers on the show, so go back and check the archives. I'm sure you'll find more creators and more shows that you're interested in. I'm a writer myself, having written with my partner, Ben Acker, for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, FX's Cassius and Clay, among others. We've also written comics from Marvel, Image, Dynamite, and more. We created a show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Maybe you'd like it. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more info. Let me know who you want to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, uh, and follow me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It always makes me feel good about myself. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right, it's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. We're doing it. Will you guys introduce yourselves on the microphone so the listener can discern your voices? Sure. My name is Brad Meltzer. I'm Todd Goldberg. Welcome. He sounds like a man. <laughs> kind of like an anchor man slash no, you just weather like, man. When you said your name, though, you had like more baritone. Well, it's from my time working as a DJ in the strip club. He's, <laughs> he's got a radio voice. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Um, you guys, tell us about this new book, which you co-wrote. Yeah, so, um, you know, someone once said to me, and that if you have a good idea and you're a writer and you don't write it, someone else will write it. And, and ideas are, they're kind of like these living, breathing things, right? They, they go out, they inhabit people. There's nothing more powerful in the world than an idea. And I had this idea uh, almost 10 years ago. I was in the back of, uh, of the National Archives in one of the treasure vaults. And, and they took me back there and they showed me this piece of paper that was an oath of allegiance from the Revolutionary War. That George Washington used to take his top military guys, he would line them up, and he would say, sign this piece of paper that says, I will forever solemnly swear to be loyal to these, you know, whatever. And we still do it today. When you go in the military, you raise your right hand, you say, I will swear I'm going to be loyal to America. And the one that they handed me was, it was numbered one, two, three, four, it was the fifth one sign. Number five in the corner was signed by a guy named Benedict Arnold. And I was like, I couldn't shake that. Right. It was just a Benedict Arnold in that moment wasn't some, you know, stupid curse word. He was he suddenly was a military hero. He was he put pen on this sheet of paper that I was holding and it was real. And all these years go by, I was I was like, I have an idea for this book and I'm gonna try but I couldn't write it. And I knew that if I didn't write it or get help writing it, it was gonna be written by someone else. And that's where Todd and I met. Um, and we together birthed uh, in this. In, in, I, I still put in this birth in the in the same sentence, but birthed this book called The House of Secrets, mm-hmm. um, which is about a young woman uh, who wakes up in a hospital. She has no memory, 
She's told that her father's dead. There's been an accident and her father's the host of a conspiracy TV show. So she, the FBI says that the last person who saw her father alive is also dead. There's an object found in his chest. The object belonged to, uh, it was a priceless book that belonged to Benedict Arnold. And from there, she goes to her house. She has no memory, so she finds scars on her body. She doesn't know how they got there, finds guns. She doesn't know where they came from. And only by solving this murder can she figure out who killed her father and who she really is. So she's she is really the house of secrets. That's where hmm. she's from. And Todd and I got to write it together, which was really fun to do because uh, I'd never done anything like that before. Yeah, I'm curious to hear about that. Um, but, but Todd, what what is your background? So I'm a writer, um, also male model, um, you know, private detective. Uh, I've written, gosh, this is the 13th book that I've done. My last book was a book called uh, Gangsterland uh, about a hitman who pretends to be a rabbi in Las Vegas. So very true to life, very rooted in history, like most of Brad's books. Um, And when Brad came to me with this idea, you know, I'd never collaborated on a book before. And uh, as Brad knows well, my uh, my ability to convey American history is pretty poor. I mean, I graduated from Cal State Northridge, which is the best college on Nordoff and Lassen in all of <laughs> in all of Northridge. Um, and so, writing this book with Brad, I had to get both a civics and a history lesson from his him as well, because I know I know bad guys and good guys. Um, but I don't know, like, I, I, I've never been in the back of the National History Museum archives with yes, the all National the National History Museum, man, oh, with all the residents, man. I love how you just turned that into like, one thing. Brad, Brad eats lunch every day with a different member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and I eat with a guy named Chad. You know, so it's, it, it was a, a combination of, of talents and skills that I think, uh, you know, complemented each other in a really nice way. Um, so how did it work? First of all, how did you know each other? So this is this this to me is like is is why you have to trust your gut. So a decade ago, I was at I think the first Thriller Fest, which is like a conference for thriller writers. They were doing a brand new one; they'd never done one before. It was kind of like um, you know an experiment. And I remember going there and seeing this guy named Lee Goldberg. And, and you, thriller writers are, are an interesting group. They they can be like all writers; they can be. Um, you know, just kind of quiet, surprisingly quiet. Um, but they're also kind of murderous in their hearts, right? Because we, <laughs> we kill people all day. So like like all writers. Um, but I remember meeting this one guy on all the panels who was actually funny. And it stands out at a thriller writers conference. I mean, th- funny is not the adjective. that you, That's not the go-to word. But I remember thinking, this guy's funny. He was making jokes that I like. I liked and that were like, and I'm a comedy snob. So I was like, these are A-plus jokes. And I never <laughs> forgot it. And my publisher, interestingly, had been trying for years to get me to work with a co-writer. And I had no interest. I mean, there are some great co-written books that are done. Mm-hmm. But so many of them, I feel like, are just like a lesser version of that writer mm-hmm. you're trying to read. And I had what, no what interest. Did, yeah, I'm curious about that. What did that mean to you at the time before having yeah before having done it i was like i don't i just never wanted to do some phoned in crap with my name on it to try and sell something that's as honest as i can be and my publisher had asked me for years to do it and i was like i i will never put my name on anything that is not better than the last book i put out i just will never i have no interest in it and so i oh you can find me over and over saying i will never ever do it and they handed me they, they introduced me to all these thriller and mystery writers and said, you know, this is who you should work with or what, you know, read this person's stuff. And there were a couple that were good that didn't work out. You know, it was like it, it wasn't going to work out for time or other thing. But the truth was, is like I just was like I'm going to do so much work um, on the plot 
and I don't want to also have to do so much work on everything. Mm-hmm. You want to, and, and when you hire and you work with a co-writer, you have a choice. You either hire someone worse than you, okay, and you make yourself feel good. You hire someone equal to you so you don't show you up, or you hire someone better than you. And I said right from the start, I'm like, I'm going to hire someone better than me. I want to hire someone who can do things I can't do. Because mm-hmm. the one thing I know, I've been doing this 19 years, is that I always want to learn. In every book, I totally feel like I learned something new. And so I was like, and then I read Todd. Um, I called Todd's brother, who was funny at Thriller Fest. And I said, I know this is going to sound crazy. <laughs> I'm like, I don't even know why I'm calling you. I haven't spoken to him in, in, in probably half a decade. And neither did I at that point. Sure, right, right. We had a big rift between Lee yeah, and Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I called him up and I said, I know this is going to sound crazy. He wound, he actually worked with Janet Ivanovich on, on co-written books. Hmm. I said, but you're funny. And that's not a word. I know. To me, comedy is a sign of intelligence. I'll just say it. Like I really believe that the funniest people are the smartest people. You can't have one without the other. And so I was like, I know that you have taste. I know that you have the comedy. Do you know other people who I, I want someone great? And he and he said, I'll never forget. I remember where I was standing. I said because I know he gave me a, two names, and then he said, and I know this is going to sound crazy because it's self serving, but he's like, you should meet my brother. And I was like. Okay, I'll take a shot. And he sent me a short story Todd had written about um, about his father. And I have major father issues. <laughs> and Todd, when I read the story, had major father <clears throat> issues. And the story was in basically like one like what, when short story of the year. Uh, Best American essays, actually. Best so American essays. Right? I mean, it was an un. And I read this nonfiction story. And I had no idea if this guy, Todd Goldberg, could plot, could craft, could twist chapters, right? <laughs> but I was like, this guy can write like a son of a bitch. I'm like, and I want to work with this guy. Hmm. And I remember calling him up, and then you have that, like, first date thing. And within, like, two minutes, I, remember, mm. I don't know what the joke was, but it was some obscure, it could have been a MASH reference, a Super <laughs> Friends reference. It was some, you know, dumbass, obscure nerd thing that I was like, this is my guy. He's got the same sense of humor, mm. the same general age, the same, we like the same crap, and we're gonna, I, I feel like I can make this work. And I remember at the time, my editor was like, you're an idiot. They like they said to me, they're like, what are you doing? And this guy's never written thrillers like you write before. He doesn't write mysteries in the way you mm-hmm. write them. And I was like, He's an incredible character writer. Hmm. I got the plot. I know the plot of this book. I had, I mean, I, the plot of the book came from years ago. I, I, was, um, I, I was obsessed with the last moments of George Washington and Benedict Arnold. And the last moments between them are kind of heartbreaking because they say it's one of, when he's betrayed, they were friends, and that George Washington apparently is one of the only times he ever cries. Hmm. So, which is a you know, potent image that stuck with me, but this is the one thing I found. And, and, I, and Todd, I, I know, I remember us talking about this over and over was George Washington gets a letter from Benedict Arnold after the betrayal and it's delivered by Alexander Hamilton who delivers it not by rap or song but just by <laughs> a hand and the letter asks for three things it says one um, don't kill my wife she didn't know I was a traitor two don't kill the staff they didn't know I was a traitor and three uh, can you please send me back my clothing and baggage it's like, and, an, like an ex-girlfriend asking for her black T-shirt Right. Back. She wants her record collection yeah. back, right? That black T-shirt's a hypothetical ex-girlfriend <laughs> you know, in your life. And, and, and the truth was is we, I was just like – but to this day, here's – Washington sends it back, which is insane enough because like, you'd think he'd like light it on fire because that's what I would do. Um, and But what no one knows to this day is what was in that baggage that George Washington sent back to Benedict Arnold. Mm. And I knew I – I was like, that's the plot. We got the plot. Mm. You know, we're going to find this uh, – someone's going to have someone find some Benedict Arnold stuff in the present. She's going to find this book that belonged to him. It's going to tell us this story. 
What I need is someone who can do the character work to get us there. And I was like, I don't need a plotter. I don't need this. I need someone who can do what I struggle more with and I have to work harder at. And that's what Todd excelled at. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the the thing about Brad's books is that you know, I can read them and, and marvel at it because he can unwind a giant conspiracy that, that reaches backward in time and forward in time. I have a hard enough time in my writing just having someone figure out how to get to the next day without killing somebody. <laughs> like all of my books are noir or capers. And invariably, you know, if I run into a problem, I just say, well, I'll just shoot him in the back of the head. Um, and that's, you know. In that, real life too. In real life. <laughs> people don't want to mess with me because they see me come and they're like, that's a frumpy Jewish guy. Be scared. Can we also just, can we mark somewhere? Because this is the first time we're ever actually doing an interview together. Yeah. But. Meltzer and Goldberg, that's a lot of Jew on a cover yeah, of a book. That's a lot. Right? I, I which thought I, I was leaving a law firm. It was, <laughs> it, it's actually, it's the only book that's its own minion, which is, a, you know, almost. Um, <laughs> what, do you, what is your approach to characters? Why do you think, why do you think Brad responded to the way you write characters? Well, I, Brad, there's a, there's a real tug and pull between what Brad and I believe in, I think, as, as human beings and as writers. And, and we've talked about this before, which is that Brad believes people are inherently good and will do the right thing. Whereas I feel people are inherently bad and then will try to stab you both in the front and the back and the side. They're gonna, it's always going to be uh, that you're getting screwed over. And so I've always approached characters, um, good guys, bad guys, as shades of gray. And each person coming at their problems from some place of deep-seated conflict. And I don't know if that's always great for a really plot-driven book. And so to marry my sort of character-driven novels with Brad's plot-driven novels, hopefully was to create a, a perfect beast, which is a, a bunch of characters with deep emotional issues and deep, you know, personal and general issues, finding themselves in the midst of something much larger than themselves. And I think that's why we meshed well together. If we, if we were just doing the same kind of writing, both of us, um, Brad could have written the book by himself. Mm-hmm. I could have written the book sure. by myself. But I think this specific book with these two specific writers, speaking of ourselves now in third person. Love it. Um, where I've now descended directly into madness. Um, you know, that's, that's what I think a sort of partnership can do. And I always think about um, the Peter Straub, Stephen King book that they wrote together, The Talisman. Yeah, sure. Where it was a real co-written book, which is what... Brad and I did. You know, we went back and forth with the drafts. Um, he probably had a lot of dark nights of the human soul. I had, I don't know, two, three hundred of them. How many pages are in the book? Right. I mean, but the, but I also think what we stumbled into, and we didn't know this. I at least didn't know this. You're, you know, you're the smarter one. I mean, I, we picked a character that let us tell both of our views mm-hmm. in the universe. So Hazel as a character, and this, I think this was dumb luck personally. Maybe, maybe you can decide <laughs> otherwise. Maybe maybe you crafted all along and I just was along for the ride on this. But I'll see if I like it. Right, right. See, and then you can decide. But Hazel to me is a character. She's a character who wakes up and has no memory. And we didn't want to do anything silly like, you know, like amnesia because, you know, no one gets amnesia. That's a general hospital plot. But what we, what we came up with is the idea of emotional memory loss. So what she does is... Um, anything that she's emotionally attached to, people that she's emotionally attached to, she can't remember. So she knows her ATM code, but if she walks into a bar, she doesn't know if that guy she met is a former lover or a guy who wants to kill her. She can't remember that. So as she's going through her life, she's really getting this chance to recreate herself. I mean, imagine you could take a hammer to your head and, and start over. And, and if and I think people listening, you know, there are certainly people out there who would, if that were the case, would go to a Home Depot and buy the best hammer they could. But for us... <laughs> 
um, what it allowed is she's going and investigating herself. She's going and, and looking mm. in her own life. And when she gets to a bar, they'll say, please don't start a fight again here. Right. That's how we talked about it. And she's like, what fight did I start? And as she's looking in her life, she's figuring out, you know what? I Maybe I'm not the nice person I thought I was. Maybe I'm actually a jerk. And maybe this murder investigation that I'm doing, the person I'm actually chasing is myself. Maybe I'm the murderer here. But what well, we so we thought that was cool, and we thought we made this up. And then this this Columbia this Columbia neurologist said to us, I remember on the phone we had this conference call with him. He's like, he's like, yeah, no, that's a thing. I'm like, no, no, we made that up. He's like, no, no, schmuck, you didn't make up anything. That's a real thing. And we had this, and and what it allowed is we just thought it was cool plot, like it lets us do some interesting. But what I think we we stumbled into is that. We, Hazel has a before and an after, and she has this darkness in her past where she was kind of like, you know, rough and viewed the world in a horrible way. And then she gets this new start, which is trying to be hopeful or at least the best version of herself. And I think, and you tell me, Todd, we've never really talked about it, but like, I think in a strange way, it let us both have a piece of Hazel that mm-hmm. we could own mm-hmm. as real estate and it let us split this character. So you, you know, when, when she goes dark, I couldn't write the, like when she had, there's a scene on the plane where she looks at this guy. <laughs> My favorite moment that which I've ever is, written. Right. <laughs> it really is one of the – and I remember reading the scene and going, this is so awesome. And we rejiggered the whole – I rejiggered right. the scene around. And I was like, can you do something here? And I just would hand that part to Todd. And he would – I'm like, just make the darkness happen. <laughs> I think I literally wrote in, mm-hmm. in bold. I was like, make the darkness happen here. And he has her look in the eye and suddenly she can see that vein in, her, in his throat that's pumping. And she knows she can take it out with these three things in these three ways and just – you just go cold there and you're like this woman has no soul and here's that you know that dark side of her and Todd can be that and then I can take her in the present and let her find her hopeful side and let her find something good right yeah I think that's I think that's the key is that you know when I'm writing a character and there the scene that that Brad's talking about she's on a plane and there's a guy sitting next to her and the guy yanks uh, her headphones out of her iPad, which is something that has happened accidentally to me. I've been on a plane and someone, you know, moves their arm and you're stuck in the middle seat and all your crap goes falling. And you're like, you know, I would kill this person. Um, and there is the difference between Todd and I. I'd be like, I'm sorry. And he's like, I will kill this person. And so, you know, I've already played this out in my mind. I will break my headphones into sharp little points and I will stab you in the neck over and over and over again until you die. Which I recognize is not the sort of thing one wants to do on a plane. Or say in a public forum like Right, this. right. I don't intend to fly anywhere anytime soon. But being able to sort of tap into both of those things and also tap into the fear that happens. Having those thoughts engenders in a person, that's, I think, just as Brad was saying, that's that's the duality of our minds at work, um, that Brad can pull her back out of the darkness and I can drop her into the darkness. <laughs> but it, but she's big enough to allow both. Right. Like she can, yeah, which is right. interesting. And that, that, that to me is the interesting part because, you know what, and to get back to your original question in terms of how we did it, um, you know, we, we – Todd came to Florida where I live. We sat for a long weekend and, and, and we knew kind of what the plot was. And then when we sat together, it got even more complex. Obviously you plotted out more. Um, and then the, the plan was to let Todd write like 50 pages and I go over and we'd see where we were. And, and, you know, Todd wanted to go forward and I was like, you know what, then go forward. I trust you. Like there has to be trust here and I want to, you know, go on that. And then basically when he was done with his draft of the book, I took the book and then kind of rewrote over it. And the interesting part was when he was like, I remember, that when I took the book over, I remember there was my favorite scene in the entire book is actually at the end. And it's a scene in Libya 
And Todd had written it as like a 30 page <laughs> single, like 30 pages, one scene. Single space. Single space. Like, <laughs> like Yeah. With like Unabomber text and handwriting. It was basically um, David Foster Wallace, the thriller novel. It really was. I mean, basically, it was brilliant. But I said to him, I said, you realize that there are like four cliffhangers in the scene and you don't even realize they're there. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, watch. And I go, click, click, click. I took those four. I took those 30 pages, made it four chapters. Then I wrote chapters between them to fill it in. And suddenly we now had, you know, eight chapters of cliffhangers. (laughs) And I remember when I finished his version of the book. I was like, I don't know how you do what you do with character. And and then I handed him my version of the book when it was done. And he was like, I don't know how you do what you do with yeah. plot. Hmm. And, and, and for me, it was actually, it was, I think in a weird way, as a, as a mainstream novelist who writes mainstream thrillers, there's a, there's kind of like this, uh, or at least I'll speak for myself, there's that feeling that we're looked down on. And as someone who writes comics, there's a feeling we're looked down on. Um, as, as if like, you know, we're, we're in the ghetto, like, like there's great pyramid Mm -hmm. and there's great literatures at the top, literary novels. And then there's like, you know, somewhere in the middle is, you know, fill in whatever you want there to be, you know, nonfiction, other things. And somewhere in the ghetto at the bottom is comic books and, (laughs) and, and mainstream thrillers and chiclet and all this other stuff. And to me, I hate that. There is no pyramid to me. There's a flat line. And in every subgenre, 90% of it is crap and 10% of it is gold, right? In comics, in thrillers, in literary books as well, 90% of it's shit. And television, movies, everything. And our job is to always find the gold, right? That's what we love to do. And for me, I think when when I was looking at this and, and when we were tackling it was – when we were done, he w- I had a certain definite appreciation for his character that I was blown away by, but it was the first time I felt like he was like, you know, you do something too. Like there was an art form in just plot. And it was, it was actually, I didn't go into it this way, but it made me realize like, look at my, I don't think of what I do. I never pull it apart. I never think of how I do it. I just go and do it. And it was one of the few times where I was like, you know, I have my little smally moment where I was like, you know, you can do this today. You know, I love you for being who you are, Brad Meltzer. Um, so I owe Todd for that one. And you owe me thirty dollars for the uh, the self therapy as well. I think way more cross, than thirty. Health net, whatever you got. <laughs> oh, you talking I'll about the copay? That's copay. That's copay. Yeah. Like, when you took that first draft, um, what kind of an outline were you working off of? Well, as Brad said, we got together and we met at his place for uh, a few days, and we did these huge flip boards where mm-hmm. I wrote in uh, a giant black marker all these things, and we we you know we filled up like eighty pages of this stuff in giant print. And then I got home and I laid it all out on the floor and I thought, I have no idea what we just talked about. <laughs> I have because no idea. you're not a pot guy, right? Because right? he's not like, like – yeah. And the thing that I – and I should have written it down too, but I was like, he's writing, so I don't got to write. Because you know, <laughs> I've been in a writer's room. We did Jack and Bobby. Like if someone's writing, you that's the rule. You don't got to write. Right. Like someone else got it. So I remember being like – and then it was very clear that – I mean, again, we just met each other. So it was clear like – you had to find your way to plot. Right. I had to find my way to character. And, and you know, we, we had a the, – the nugget that Brad had from the beginning was obviously the thing we were going towards, this, you know, this body that's found with Benedict Arnold's Bible in it. Discovering who Hazel was, discovering the relationship with her father, Jack, who hosts the, uh, the conspiracy show um, and dies at the beginning of the book. All of that was sort of – you know, Brad said, hey, figure that out. You know, figure out what that drama is between them. And there's a brother character named Skip. Um, figure out, you know, the dynamics, of all this stuff. And that was, you know, that's not writing necessarily. That's sitting, staring out your window, eating chocolate covered almonds from Trader Joe's for like 13 hours on end while your wife walks by and says, are you working? You're like, yeah, yeah, I'm totally working. Um, 
And that was was like a month of solid just sitting and thinking about stuff before we ever did it. Um, And then the plot, you know, Brad's Brad's genius is he can think in such a, a wide tableau of things and I can I can think basically a chapter at a time um, because I come from sort of a short story uh, tradition so I'm always thinking in 15 or 25 pages at a time and so I would write 50 pages and I'd send them to Brad and he I, I could sort of feel via email the sense of of unending doom that you know, my god <laughs> I, well, no, I made a terrible mistake no it was never that but my thing was and, and the funny here's here's the best way I can I can describe this is so I, well, if, if if we did anything to each other's work, is I would constantly be again looking at the, taking the best parts of his character mm-hmm. work and pulling it out and then using it in the scene, but cutting out all this what I was calling fat. Yeah, there's a okay? lot of fat in my work. And so, but the funny part was is we we just recently we hadn't spoken in a while. We were getting ready for the tour for the House of Secrets, and I said, "How now? We're both working on our own novels." And I said to him, "I said, so how's your writing going?" He's like, "It's going kind of crappy because all I hear is you in my head going like, cut the fat, get to the point, <laughs> turn the page." Sure. And I said, "Well, that makes me feel better because I'm working on my book and it's going crappy because every frigging character I write now has an inner monologue, <laughs> you know." And so it was just so clear that each of us admired what the other one had done. Right. So it's not a dread of like, "Oh my gosh, this isn't going to work," but as soon as I see what it is. Um, again, I see. I can see what's missing on my end. Mm-hmm. Like I, I had no fear that, and I knew when it was going. I was like, "This is a great character," but I knew suddenly. I was like, "I see exactly what I have to do to this plot to make it work and make it all come together and make and make you turn the pages and care mm-hmm. about the characters really early." So we took, I mean, the first hundred and fifty pages mm-hmm. and basically turned them into like. 25 right. pages mm. and i was just like i'm watch watch me do this <laughs> and and because todd loves to clear his throat and mm. what comes out after he clears it is genius but we got and that's part that to me is process it's not Absolutely a good right. or bad it's just yeah. that's the process so it was fascinating because suddenly i was saying oh this is how i work i love to you know it's the elmore leonard thing which mm-hmm. is like you put in just the good parts that people want to read mm-hmm. and like i can find those i know what those are and i will find them like you know like a hound and i would like literally go through a 10 page chapter and i can find turn it into the best three pages mm. and you know you know what it's also about and i think you see this more often in television because a, a show obviously comes down from the executive producer's mind is replicating each other's logic and and having a consistency in logic throughout the book so that the characters don't make decisions on page one that they wouldn't make on page 50 from the logic that they have and that's that's about brad and i understanding individually each other um so i I began to think of things in okay how would in brad's mind this scene go Mm -hmm. and i think he would do the same thing and then when he would do a rewrite i could see oh he he wrote that line because number one he thinks it will amuse me and then i would (laughs) write the next line nobody loved each other's jokes more More than than the two of us the two of us loved each other like i remember giving it to like i give it to my wife he gave it to his wife and my wife was like you two are so not as funny as you both think you are but we would be like how good are our jokes and there's nothing better than an echo chamber to reinforce how you know good you think you are a lot of super friends jokes really land yeah i thought all of them landed all make it into the final version a hundred percent yeah yeah it did The best part of doing that is that, like, yes, it absolutely did. Although the funniest part was is is this is where it just got super nerdy because because you had some line about so and so, so and so, and the rest of the Super Friends, and I was like, well, you said the rest of the Justice League. Right. And then, you know, he said, I remember what it was. You said Superman, Batman, the Wonder Twins, and the rest of the Justice League, and I was like, that Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, <laughs> Wonder Twins. 
and the rest of the super friends. Right. And I was just like, I was chuffed. Yes. So, you know, but then we were like, we are so funny. This is just the best. I don't know if you're doing a great job selling. I'm not sure. No, I don't. I feel like this is all. Is that how you pretty much sell every thriller? Your your Wonder Twins reference in it. If you mention the Wonder Twins. I once, uh, years ago, I wrote a piece for a magazine um, where the Wonder Twins are old and they're looking back over their life and, you know, what they did to Gleek. They they took Gleek from his poor home planet, brought him to earth to be their their sure. monkey wait how do i not know that piece where i don't it? think i've ever shown you, you have to i need yeah. to read that it's a it's a it's a weird sad awful piece there's a lot about you know where does the ice giant fit in their lives now you know it was i can't even remember the name of the magazine it was in some some I or that someone literary, you, yeah. literary journal. I'll have to find it. I love that you were selling that to the literary journals. Like, <laughs> well, the they literary. asked me for it. They asked me for it. I'm sure they said, do you have any uh, Wonder Twin pieces? Because that's what we're really looking for. This is an issue focusing on the Wonder Twins. A really. lot of time spent writing my Wonder Twins fan fiction really uh, paid off in that Listen, $60 and five contributors' copies I got. That's why they paid you 65 bucks? I think that was it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a killer. Um, let, me, let me ask you this, and then I want to get into sort of the deep process stuff but you know you guys talk about what each of you brought to the team um but you're also to an extent selling yourselves short i mean you know brad you've written characters and they're characters that people like and you've written plot dodd and Mm -hmm. and the plot moves like i don't care how basic it is it's a plotted (laughs) book you know obviously working together has changed the approach going forward but it hasn't made you reconsider your past work um i'm I'm, you know for me and i appreciate that and listen i love my characters right and and you know we can get reviews that say you know hey i like this character and i've gotten you know uh, what i pride myself on in my books is that i don't write lantern jawed heroes who've saved Mm -hmm. the day i mean that's i always write these flawed characters i think for so i don't i don't um I don't, I'm not trying to take away from myself or say like, you know, I can't do anything. It's not, it's not meant to be like that, you know, like I said, it wasn't, but to me, I think there are things, you know, that come naturally to you. Mm-hmm. I work hard at character. Mm-hmm. I, I bust my ass. Like it takes me, I don't write a book a year. I've never been able to write a book a year. Um, the people who can write a book a year can just pump out characters like that and plot together. I can't do that. I will. My extra time is not for plot. My extra time is figuring out the characters because I will not write a book until I love that character and try and really understand them. What does? Um, let me stop you yeah. there for a sec. What does figuring out characters look like? What they want. Figuring out what they want. I used to be. You know, I used to do. I never knew. I used to do it as I'd write everything I could. I'd fill a notebook with everything I knew about the main character. Hmm. So I would. You know, and. I'm talking about like what bones they broken in their body, what, you know, what foods they're allergic to, who they were in third grade, who they really wanted to be when they entered junior high school and who they were going to swore they were going to change to be when they never changed when they entered high school, like truly figuring out who they were. What I realized over 19 years of doing this is really what I was getting to is what does this person want? And of course that want changes and moves and it should shift and change. Um, but at the end of the process, what I would do is I would, at the end of the book, I would write like a, um, it was almost like, uh, what was that game show? Uh, not to tell the truth, but like, like match, uh, not even match game. What's the one where you get married where you find someone? Uh, uh, newlywed game? Newlywed game, thank you. It was like the newlywed game of the character. I was good at that game. And, and right, even without, yeah, without being newlywed. Any yeah, any woman near me at right. the time. With just a right hand. Um, and, so, <laughs> and left-handed and, audience. And left-handed, right. Yeah, that's why so muscular. Um, but to me... 
I would write down every question I could, you know, again, what foods you're allergic to, what bones you broke, whatever it might be. And until I had an answer, a different answer for each character, I wouldn't start the book. Hmm. And if I would go like, I don't know, I'll figure it out. I'd be like, don't start the book. Don't start the book until you know, because it's almost like if I said, think of your best friend right now. And this is where it was taught to me years ago, is they said, if I said, where do you want to take your best friend for their birthday? You know your best friend well enough to know, is it going to be fast food that's really junky but really good? Or is it going to be a place with a cloth napkin? Like, you know your friend, you know who they are. And to me, I think good plot is good plot, but the best plot is good character. And if you write the character and you know what they do, you don't write, you don't have to plot the book. You just put the character in in a situation, they will tell you what they're going to do. I remember writing... When I did this book called The Zero Game, I wrote the whole book revolved around the, fi- the, the, the final act of the book and the final scenes of the book where it's going to be in a gold mine, the largest gold mine in all of, uh, the, in all of the United States is 8,000 feet down. It's like six Empire State Buildings straight down into the ground. And I'd gone there and I'd researched it. I went 8,000 feet mm-hmm. down. It was a spectacular scene. And the whole book revolved around taking this, this young uh, – character that i had it was in her early 20s and she was going to go to this gold mine and she had to go to the bottom of the gold mine and get what's down there because there was a secret down there and i'm all excited and i get to that scene and i go to put the character in the gold mine and the character says to me like i'm not stupid i am not going in there (laughs) and i remember being and i know it sounds silly but i was like get in the gold mine you know and she's like i'm not going in there and and i realized in that moment that was the best creative writing exercise like i was like you know what and i literally she didn't she goes down there she freaks out she doesn't go she won't she won't go down um it changed the whole plot of the book and i had to work around it but it was true to the character Mm -hmm. and suddenly i was like i got it and that's where i finally it took me four books five books to figure it out and i was like i get it now this is how so until i can get to that point where the character's telling me what they want to do and obviously sometimes we bluff our way through and we figure it out as we go i think that hazel came after many pages we finally found her and that was because we were doing a new process here but for me that process has to be answering everything i can about them hmm. i don't know where That's you go from there. yeah i'm a little bit different it, you know i've always sort of uh Adhered to this dictum that I I just use the word dictum by the way you can tell I'm also a professor. You used tableau before. I'm going to use pedagogy later. It. Yeah. Um, it, I read it in a, a great craft book years ago by uh, the excellent writer Josip Novakovic, where he said setting begets character begets plot. So out of a place comes a person, out of a person comes a story, and so I've always attacked my characters first from where they're from and that's a tangible thing and also an emotional thing and then figuring out okay if this person's from x place you know what are they like why are they that person and also making sure that a person is different depending upon where they are at any given time i'm i'm not likely to be the same person when i'm waiting for my mocha at starbucks as i am at home when the warriors are playing you know i'm probably not going to be screaming epithets at everyone that that comes by when I'm at the Warriors game, but at Starbucks, I absolutely am. Um, but, you know, I I typically have written about bad guys trying to become good guys um, versus heroes. I've always written about the anti-hero for the most part or someone who is at a point in their life where they're about to cross the line and do a bad thing. And I think writing a character like that, someone who's trying to be good, it naturally puts pressure from all sides. There's the person they want to be, there's how other people perceive them, uh, and then there's their emotional life as well. And and so I think, you know, in writing Hazel, 
And that was somewhat easier to do because we knew that she'd been a bad person at some point in her life. And we knew that she was starting from a blank slate. Um, but in my other books, you know, the, my last book, Gangsterland, you know, it's about, a, it's about a guy who's a hitman who has to pretend to be a rabbi. And if you pretend to be a rabbi long enough, you become a rabbi. And I was fascinated and I'm still fascinated with the metamorphosis that people go through, the characters go through when they have to change their identity. See, but that's what you're obsessed with. Like yes. Todd is obsessed. Like when I I'm read his work, he's identity. identity is like when I was reading his work, I was like, and I think, I mean, this is one of the things that appealed to me for the plot is you're obsessed with identity. And this is what I can't do is you're obsessed with identity because this is your life, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you are used to the idea of wanting to be something different. Right. And my parents put in me, we both have father issues, but his he had much, much rougher father issues than I did. My parents, I have huge issues because my dad was a child and he truly was a, he was just a, he, he was terrible with money and I became the parent to my father very, very young. But my dad gave me nothing but love. Like I could do no wrong. You know, I was the, I would go into the bookstore. At, you know, he would go into a bookstore and say, "I'm here for Brad Meltzer's new book. He's my favorite <laughs> author." And they're like, "Mr. Meltzer, we know he's your son. Like we know." And they just gave me nothing but love. But I think in a strange way, we develop like you. I feel like you're still searching as like. I personally think your life is you think of yourself as this bad guy, but you're really a good guy right. and you're still fighting yeah. it. And that's, that's your story. That's totally true. And that's your story. And that's why it's a, it works great. Whereas like I come from it as like, I believe there's awesome power in everyone and just embrace who you are. And it, you know, it's a little darkness light. It's the same journey, mm-hmm. but we just take different paths to it. And so to me, your role, like I think you're saying the way you look for character, but really what you're doing is you're figuring out your own life. Yeah, and yeah, lying. I'm figuring sure. out my own life. I sure, mean, that's sure. my own thing. So, and I, you know, like my dad was in TV news, which is where I get this voice honestly from. Um, and my mother was a society columnist. She, so she was a professional socialite. So her main job was to, you know, sleep with mobsters and then write glowing pieces about them in the newspaper. And that will mess with the kid's head when, you know, three-finger Philly comes to pick up your mom to go out on a date. And when you only see your dad, um, his name on the news, or you know that he's dating the host of Romper Room, and she looks through that mirror, and she never says, I see Todd. Oh, your your dad dated the host of Romper Room? Oh, yeah. I stayed. My cousins were on Romper Room. Romper Room, was for anyone listening, was an old, like— tiny little show shot out in new york at the mm-hmm. time that was on like local access that if you didn't live in new york you know tri-state area you didn't see it but my cousins were on romper because my uncle was a dentist and i got to stay home from school one day and you're telling me your dad yeah dated the woman on romper yeah miss Susie or whatever her name was this yeah, is they, why we work together right so they farmed I mean, that's it out unbelievable it so was here was it, it was in san francisco but was this was it the same romper or was it no. like a syndicated idea it was, syn- it was syndicated like an idea. idea yeah so you had a different romper room than i yeah. did we have magic mirror. Yeah, it's the same thing. There's the woman with the magic mirror <laughs> oh speaking to the divorced children of, or the single children of divorced parents. Yeah, and you're saying, in your house, in mine, she was speaking to me. I was like, I see you. Yeah, she never spoke to me. It was just, That's she went, like, she went Teddy and then right to Tom. She would literally have this moment where she would hold up a mirror yeah, mm-hmm. and she would tell you all the kids she saw. And Todd is now saying all he heard was not his name. Right. It was a little creepy, frankly. I mean, she was like Santa Claus without the gifts. Like, I see you. 
and I'm coming for you. You will romp in my room. That is how you see the world, my friend. <laughs> that is how you see the world. I love that show. Thanks for ruining it forever for me. Kids say don't know about Romper Room. Romper Room was creepy as hell. Was, that woman every with that... child show was creepy as hell. Every children's show when but we were little room. was she creepy as hell. The they were all old men with mustaches talking to us through the TV. They're all basically, you know, we used to love Richard Dawson kissing women on Family Feud. That, that right? actually started the herpes virus. That's actually been traced back. To Richard Dawson. To Richard Dawson. Meanwhile, and I'll only top that story by my wife just got, her family just got selected, I'm not joking, for Family Feud. Oh, no. Yeah. They're going on Family Feud. She's going <laughs> on Family the feud. feud. So now thanks for putting herpes and my wife in the same sentence. I appreciate that very much. Um, I'm pretty sure you did that. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, I interrupted your take on identity. Oh, it, it's well, clear. I'm just messing up. Think, yeah, I think we've got that. But I wanted to ask about... Plot. When mm-hmm. you're writing on your own, do you do you outline? Do you just write? Do you have the characters? What what what's the process look? Like? Uh, I don't write it down. I keep it in my head, um, which was easier when I was thirty. Um, you know, fourteen books in, I now start to jot a few notes down every now and then. Um, but I, you know, before I sit down to write a book, I think I've thought it out pretty well for a long time. Um, you know, the, the House of Secrets was the sort of first time that I'd written a book, plotting it on the fly and then writing it. You know, normally I would, you know, it usually takes me a year and a half uh, to two years to write a novel. And in that time, it's, you know, I, I'm working over an idea that I've had for years and years and years. Um, and so, you know, I, I know the journey of the character um, more than I know the journey of the plot. I know bad things are going to happen, pressure is going to be exerted, someone's going to get shot in the back of the head, and the story will end. Um, and so for me, plotting has always been about figuring out organically while I'm writing what's going to happen to the character and then fitting things in around it, which is not, you know, how you write a thriller. I think when you are writing noir fiction, which essentially I've been doing, it's easier that way. I mean, you know, there's not there's not huge concentric ripples from the events. It's, it's right. a pretty personal affair in a noir novel. But in a thriller, you have to, you have to move that plot out in, in such a big way because it has to encapsulate so many more people than just the main character and the, and the main antagonist. Um, so it's, you know, it's thinking with a new part of my brain. I mean, that was the question you'd asked initially is, you know, obviously you guys have done this before. Um, don't don't be so hard on yourself. And then I'm like, you should talk to Dr. Janowski, who I'm going to see next Tuesday, and, and tell her that you already told me this, and then she doesn't have to tell me. Um, but in fact, with this book, it was not something I'd ever done before. Um, you know, I had plotted things. Obviously, I'd written all these books, and I'd, I'd gotten some nice acclaim and good sales and all that stuff. Um, but it was an entirely new kind of writing for me. And, you know, you reach a certain point as a writer. Um, I'm 45 years old, and I thought, well, this is who I am. This is the kind of books I write, and this is my process. I know how I how to do it, and no one's going to tell me, and you don't tell me, and no one tells me. And then you realize that there's another way, and maybe it's not the right way for every book I'm going to write, but it's absolutely the right book for this kind of book that I'm going to write. And that's, I mean, that's a simple lesson as it is to know that what you do writing a novel is different than what you do writing a screenplay or writing an essay or writing a short story. Or if there's any poets out there writing a poem, um, and if there are any poets out there, please find a, find a trade. You know, accounting accounting's good. People seem to like accountants, um, and you know that's that's as a writer, that's a really awesome thing to, to realize. I'm not fully formed. That there's more that I can learn how to do, and um, 
and let it change you. Not be afraid. You know, I mean, I think, uh, and Brad probably agrees with this too, that the fear of doing something because you're afraid of failing is the, the sort of thing that gets writers into a rut of writing the same kinds of books over and over and over again um, because your fans like it or it's easy for you. But man, when you try something hard and it works, that's a really exciting and refreshing experience. And it then makes you less risk averse to try other things. And, and that's, that's been the coolest part of this whole process. For right. Me. That's right. And that's where I start. I mean, I never wanted to do a co-written book because I just was like, I don't see the benefit to me other than a financial that they want to put my name on another book. Right. And then I met this writer years ago who has one of the biggest writers in the country, has one of the most famous characters out there and said to me, if I have to write this character again, I want to put a gun in my mouth. I'm not joking. <laughs> Said it to me. And I remember, and this, this guy will be far more successful than I'll ever be. But I remember being, I never want your life. I never want to hate what I love so much. And I realized in that moment that, it, you know, you have to keep shifting it and changing mm-hmm. it. And for me, at least, if, I do, if you do the same thing over and over, it's like going to see 500 you know, romantic comedies in a row. Even if you love romantic comedies, you won't by the end. Or superhero movies or independent art films. Whatever it is you love, if you do it over and over and over, eventually it's going to kill you. And I, I think, you know, what Todd said is right. I mean, I think the hardest thing in life... And the greatest risk you're ever going to take is to admit what you want. Mm-hmm. And I think we all know what we want, but we don't admit it. And, and I think the way you admit what you want is you got to find what you love, which is the obvious one. We all know that. But you also got to find what scares you. And so I had this um, – I'll tell you the story is that years ago, I used to work at Haagen-Dazs in the Aventura Mall. Okay, <laughs> And when I was working, I, was, I, was, I got hired so young, I gave a fake age so I could work there because my family didn't have money. I, had no money. I mean, that so, was it. it some was people a, give a fake I age, a fake age to, get to fight in Vietnam. Right, and I literally thought I was 15 years old and I pretended to be 16 because need, I needed the cash. And so the manager at Haagen-Dazs kept getting fired. And my friend and I, who were like 17 years old, we were like, why do you keep hiring these new managers let us be the manager so we convinced the, the owner to let us be the manager oh, Jesus. and this woman comes up to us one day and she starts snapping her fingers and she goes you need to serve me and i said ma'am i'll be right with you she's like no you need to serve me now and i was like ma'am you know please don't talk so rude you know and then she's like serve me now and i said you know what ma'am when you talk to us like that i'm not going to serve you I, I don't appreciate being talked to i'm not serving you and she's like you're not going to serve me i'm like i'm not serving you she goes i want to see the manager i said hold on let me get him for you and i turn around <laughs> over my shoulder and i'm like can i help you and she's like you're not the manager i said i'm the manager and she said you know what you're going to be working at this miserable ice cream store for the rest of your miserable life and I said to her, ma'am, if I'm working here for the rest of my miserable life, you're still never getting any ice cream. <laughs> and I used to tell that story and I used to always laugh at it and be like, oh, she never bothered me and that was um, fine. But the reality was it totally bothered me. Right. It really bothered me. It struck me to my core because my dad was not a successful guy. He really struggled his whole life. He had a really rough life. Um, and that woman made me feel like my life would somehow be lesser, right? That, and I'm not talking about the financial rewards. I'm talking about like truly safety and we didn't know where we were going to live and like stuff that was like scary, just stability, the loss of that. And, but what I also realized, and that's what scared me, but what I also realized when I look back on it is that woman is, was rocket fuel to me. Mm. That woman was like why I was going to race forward. It's why I had hunger in me. It's why I was like, I need to go, go, go. And, and I think if you can, if you know, when you, when you're scared of something, that's your body's way of saying you care about it. 
And I think if you can, you know, find what you love and if you can find what you're scared of and you can turn it into your rocket fuel, it's like, you know, life is not an escalator that you just ride. Life is a trapeze and it's terrifying. But if you leap, it will be glorious. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to leap and you have to take that, that jump into your fear. And for me, this working with someone else, someone that I respected, someone that could do things that I'm like, you know what? He does this more naturally than I do it. I know how to do it, but like he does it in a way that I, I was like, I was in totally new terrifying territory, but I'm like, you got to leap and you'll find something better, which is why I'm so proud of this book. I love, you know, I love how people have reacted to it in this character because we totally leapt and did something that was not in our safe zone. FreshBooks is dead simple cloud accounting software that's saving millions of freelancers from the scourge of dealing with their day-to-day admin and paperwork. Yeah, I said scourge. It's the perfect word to describe agonizing tasks like formatting and tracking invoices, managing cash flow, dealing with expense reports, chasing late payments, other things. Nobody likes to do this stuff, except maybe the 5 million freelancers and small business owners already using FreshBooks. Invoicing. It literally takes about 30 seconds to create and send a really professional-looking invoice. Your clients can pay you online, which you can seriously improve how quickly you get paid. Late payment reminders. If a client forgets to pay you on time, FreshBooks will handle the awkwardness with customizable late payment reminders. Need more? Expense. FreshBooks has also cracked the code on expense tracking. You can set up FreshBooks to import expenses directly from your bank accounts, so next time you use your debit card for that business lunch, the transactions magically appear in your FreshBooks account. It's not actual magic. For a 30-day free trial, just go to freshbooks.com writers. Enter Nerdist Writers panel in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Once again, 30-day free trial. Go to freshbooks.com writers. Enter Nerdist Writers panel in the How Did You Hear About Us section and get yourself some fresh books. Please tell me, though, that when the, the writer said, you know, he wanted to put a gun in your mouth, his mouth, that you said, I don't want your life like James Vanderbeek. Beek. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I should have. I mean, the thing was, I'm, the funny part is I never thought of the comeback for that because it was such... I'm still, it still shakes me. Like right. it shakes me that you can love this writing life. And, you know, we all spend, and you, how many people, I, I know you've had on here, right? You have so many people come on here. We all worked so many years. And I know there are so many like writers out there who are just like looking for this life. The idea that you can spend your life chasing this, this dream and that one day you would get there and hate it is yeah. so heartbreaking to me. And I watch it in comics. I watch people who have done comics oh, yeah. and who mm-hmm. like, we, we killed, you know, I wrote the justice league. I wrote Batman. I wrote green arrow. I mean, I love doing that. And there are people who work in comics who it, you know, comics are still a churn and they worked in so many comics that they can't read them anymore. They don't like them anymore. Right. They don't, and I'm like, what? That is, that's, that's the most horrible thought that you could take what you love and destroy it by loving it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you guys just briefly about um, what it looks like when you are working on a book. Uh, what is your day-to-day? I mean, you, you mentioned, Todd, that it takes you a year and a half mm-hmm. to write a book. What what does that year and a half look like? Uh, well, I wake up, first thing, I run 10 miles, um, do either 500 sit-ups or 500 push-ups. It just depends. It's, that's sarcastic, people. <laughs> you know, it... Some days it's it's a thousand words a day. Um, some days I sit down. What's a thousand words? I don't count words. Four pages. Okay. Four or five pages. Some days it's it's four or five pages. Some days it's a paragraph. 
Um, some days I write stuff and I absolutely love it. And then I wake up the next morning, I look at it and I delete the whole thing. Um, you know, books, 75,000 to 100,000 words. And, you know, over the course of a year and a half while writing it, I might write 300,000 words. Um, and I, you know, I've always treated it as, as a real job, which is to say I do it five days a week. Um, you know, I take days off. Um, I, I yell at my boss, which is myself. Um, and, you know, I, I, I give myself the freedom to be disappointed in performance, uh, you know, all, all those things. Um, but I think the thing that separates aspiring writers from professional writers uh, oftentimes is drive. You know, it's, it's the ability to wake up and do it and replicate experience day after day after day. And I'm a, I'm a professor. Um, I run a, a graduate school in creative writing at UC Riverside. And what I tell my students over and over again is it's not just about writing one great book. It's about writing one great book every time you write a, a book, you know, of, of doing it over and over and over again and training yourself to use that muscle. So for me, I also make sure I write at the same time and I, you know, I put on the same music sometimes just to get myself back in the mindset and, you know, just be ready to write at 10 a.m. And mm -hmm. by 10 a.m. I mean 1 p.m. And by 1 p.m. I mean <laughs> 9 p.m. And by 9 p.m. I mean mostly 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. Um, Is that true? Is it mostly? Yeah, I'm a, I'm, I write a lot at night. I'll, I'll, I'd be writing uh, this book with Brad and I'd, I'd come up with a question and I'd write to him at 4 a.m. my time and he'd respond in real time because he's just getting up to take the kids to school. <laughs> right, because I'm on the East Coast, he's sure. on the West Coast. Um, but, you know, that... Uh, at the end of the day, no one's calling, no one's emailing. I can, mm -hmm. you know, I can turn off the internet and, and be content. Um, but you know, the, just the the year of, of writing is also an emotional investment of keeping your head in that character the entire time and writing about sort of hard things and murder and, and death and conspiracies and all that stuff. It's a hard place to keep your head for a year at a time, and so I, I temper it with you know lots of. Um, HGTV and, and making sure I know what's up with the Property Brothers at all times um, and, and watching sports and, and doing things like reminding my wife that I exist. Hey, I live here. We should we should eat together um, and just treating it like it's a real job and, and making sure that it doesn't overwhelm my entire life, because I think what we do is predicated on having the human experience, but going out there and talking to real people and understanding how people sound and living in the world. You know, I think if you're going to create a fictional world, you have to be a part of the real one. Yeah, that's great advice. What, what does it look like? How long does a, a novel usually take? It takes me a year and a half, two years. Mm -hmm. I've never gotten faster. Uh, I wrote my first novel that I ever wrote. I wrote it while I was um, working full time. I wrote, I wrote it at night. I'd, I'd watch a rerun of The Simpsons, uh, and, I would, <laughs> and I'd literally be writing. I'd write 8 to 11 every night. I'd take off Fridays. I'd write all day Saturday, all day Sunday. Wow. And then when I... So my first book got 24 rejection letters. There were only 20 publishers. I got 24 rejection letters, <laughs> right? Which means some people wrote me twice to make sure I got the point. But but I but I was young and stubborn. And I was like, if they don't like that, I'm going to write another. And if they don't like that, I'll write another. And then I started a book that got that sold. And I and now I was I was in law school at the time. But um, when I graduated, I was like, oh, I'm doing this full time. If I if it took me a year and a half to two years, I'm going to be super fast. And it. I, with all the time in the world, I have no job, I have no school, no nothing, and I was the same exact time. And I'm, I've written, 
you know, 11 thrillers now, and it's never been faster. Hmm. It's never gotten faster. It's so never easier. To, it's know, never no, easier. I always there's think, no. oh, this time it's going to be super simple. It's never e- any easier. Well, there's the problem, you know, someone said, uh, Tom King recently said, and I loved it, he talk, talked about comics, but he's right. He's like, you, you know, the first couple of pages, you're like, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. And then in the middle of it, you're like, I can do this. And then at the end, you get to the end, you're like, oh my gosh, there's not enough space. And then at the very end, you're like, you finish and you go, oh, I can't do the next one. Right. And that's <laughs> yeah. the writer's life, that's right? Totally like, that's it. it is right. Yeah. Right? At the beginning, you're like, how am I going to do this in the middle? Laugh. Right? And in the middle, you're just like, you know what? I think I can kind of do this. You get to the end, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be able to land this plane. And then finally, when you're done, um, you're like, I can't do this next one. And and I think that's the process. And, I, and the best advice I ever got about writing um, was uh, David Baldacci said it to me years ago. And I was struggling on my second book. I just was really fighting it. And I And he said to me, you know, Brad, he's like, if this were easy, everyone would do it. And it's okay to admit it's hard. And I, I felt like as a writer, I didn't want to admit that it was hard. I felt like I was so lucky mm-hmm. and so blessed that I had this fake job where I talked to imaginary people that only an asshole would like complain about that. And if I did, I would lose it all. Right. And I just didn't want to be that person who ever complains about this amazing job we have. And he was just like, it's hard, man. It's okay. And so for me, I, I fight it every day. I mean, I, I used to write sit when I was in my twenties, I wrote seven to eight pages a day. Oh and then God. when I was in my like late twenties, I wrote like six to seven. And then now I, I truly, if I can get two to three, I'm thrilled. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I tell myself my rationalization is I write them better now, but I truly sit down I try to be writing by 10 o'clock, 10 AM, treat it like a job. Just like Todd said, it's a sponge that you can only squeeze so much and then it's dry and to me sometimes i'll peter out at you know 2 30 and sometimes i'll peter out at six o'clock at night mm-hmm. um i have kids so i write better at night but i don't because of my kids i like to you know be there but well that i was gonna ask you that i mean you have kids yeah you have press for whatever book has just come sure. out you're in tv you're writing comics on occasion how do you how do you make the time um you know i i do think that the writing life today. And I don't think this is like Hemingway's time, right? Like Hemingway is like, you know, you do what you want, you say what you want, you send it in, you get in a fight, you know, like, <laughs> like now I don't believe, and, and this is sad. It's just the reality we're in, but it's like, you can't be a writer today without a little bit of Barnum in you, right? You got to mm. sell yourself. Like, it's just, you can't, you got to cut through the noise. You got to, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, you know, Instagram, whatever dumb thing you're on, you know, like you have to be noticed. It's, it used to be just, it was a meritocracy of like, here's the writing. I'm going to find an agent and there will be magical goodness. And so I think that anyone who is doing this today has figured out just to even get your book published, um, has figured out a little bit of, of fi- realizing that's part of the job too, is that management of, going out there and, and going through the selling process. Yeah. Um, and, and for me, I actually, I used to never mind it because I didn't have kids. I only, for me, the only issue is just, I don't like to be away from my kids. So I try and veer everything around that. But to me, I actually also find it a good recharge because it lets you, and I'm not talking about like, you know, you know, I get to see people and I get to use it for work. Not that at all. I just think a huge part of the process is you need to say thank you. Yeah, I you totally need agree. to say thank you to people. There are people who I have never met who come up to me to book sign. They're like, "I've been with you 19 years since your first book, mm-hmm. The Tenth Justice, and I just want to shake your hand." And when I had cancer, I read you in my chemo chair, and it helped me get through this hard time. And I'm like, I need to go and say thank you to these people who have put food on my table for 19 mm-hmm. years, and that to me is what forget about signing the books or doing the autograph, blah, 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 or, or even the press, which makes, you know, you, you can feel good when you're on a show like this, that, you know, you listen to yourself or your friends listen to yourself, um, regularly is 
going and just saying thank you to these mm-hmm. people who have busted their ass for you. Because there's one name, and in this case, two names on the cover of every book, but we are fools if we think it's a one or two person show, right? There are so many people who bust their ass, especially the readers out there who are supporting. I mean, I have people who come up to me and, you know, a woman at the book signing uh, on, in, on Friday last week said to me, uh, my husband watches your TV shows. I read your thrillers. My kids read your kids' books. And I'm just like, holy cow, like, God bless you. Like, that <laughs> is just crazy, family. right? I mean, it was just, and you have to, so I think that's just part of the process now. And, and anyone out there, like, you know, I, there are people who, I know there are authors who complain about going on tour. And I always tell my publisher, I'm like, when you find that author, hit them with their own book. Because yeah. you should be thankful that you that someone's paying you to go out and meet people who read your work. Sure, It's the coolest. I mean, the other side of it is just being able to go into a bookstore and meet the people that are selling your book who For are sure. super passionate. And who love books. Love books and are underpaid and overworked. And you walk into a bookstore in any city in America for an event. And, man, you are Beyonce when you walk in there to the staff. And, I, man, that makes you feel so appreciated and so good. And then you meet these fans who, you know, the, the, just like you were saying, Brad, that they have a real emotional investment with the little things we cook up in our head. Um, and that that's more validation than a great review in the New York Times. Um, I mean, a great review in the New York Times isn't bad, but... Just to have someone... I would know. I never get one. There. Well, I can show you some of mine. But it makes me <laughs> feel better. Um, but just to, just to be able to shake someone's hand and talk to them about themselves and ask them why they like the books or what they mean to them, um, man, that's the sort of stuff where you go home and you lay in your bed afterwards and you just think, so I get paid for this? This is a job? I also, I also will say that I find, I figure, like... People figure you out. Mm-hmm. It is, I don't want to say it's like free therapy, but it's free therapy. I remember going, you know, when you write your first book, people say, I like your book, I don't like your book. You write your second, they say, I like it, I don't. When you write your third, people start looking at the body of work. And I remember, you know, my third book came out. The internet was still new at that point. And some stranger through the website who I'd never met before emailed me and said, Dear Brad, I've read three of your books now. What are your issues with your father? <laughs> and the truth was I had none of none of the books were about dad. Sure. None of them. The, the dads in those books, because I was young, I was in my 20s, that dad was on maybe 10 pages of the book. But, man, I was clearly putting crap out yeah. there in my work that I did not even realize what I was doing. Yeah. And when you hear people's questions, the good questions, not like, you know, where to get your ideas. Like, <laughs> like the, you know, the, the ones that are really – like there are people who are – I always say that readers are smarter than the writers who they read. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you listen – and I'm not, you can't listen to everyone. You know, Neil Gaiman has a great quote that says, if you listen uh, – when people tell you what's wrong with your book – they are 99% right. When they tell you how to fix what's wrong with your book, they're 99% wrong. But when you, if you can listen to what people say, you will find gold. And I think for those writing out there, a friend of mine said to me when I first started writing, give your book to 10 of your friends. Um, and they're all going to tell you 10 different things. And they're going to lie to you because they're your friends because that's what they're supposed to do too. But you'll see when they all react that there's going to be a couple threads that totally overlap. And that's where you're going to find the truth. Mm-hmm. And you just got to be willing to realize, like, you know, they all have the problem with this character. Or they all love this character. That is just truth speaking. And and I think when you go out on tour and when you go, let you know, it's, you're, you're out of your echo chamber and you really can find not just to improve your writing, but I actually feel like, I mean, I will say myself, like as a self-improvement, like just. You know, we are never, we are not ever fully cooked. And I think we, in life, make the same mistakes we make over and over until we finally try, hopefully, somewhere to potentially learn from them. But I feel like, I, you know, as long as you're willing to be open about that, you, the universe will pay you back in goodness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Let me uh, wrap up by asking you guys what entertainment you are consuming these days. What TV, movies, books, comics? Oh gosh, um, TV! I am so sickly addicted to the Americans that it's it's starting to make me feel like I might be a Russian sleeper spy. Uh, I absolutely love that show, and I'm mostly entertained by the creative ways they're trying to hide her pregnancy. She's always holding; she's got like a, a, a bucket of toys or dinner. A lot of big coats. A lot of big coats. Um, I just read a fantastic memoir, uh, "Liar" by Rob Roberge, um, which I recommend for anyone who wants to read a non-linear memoir of both rock and roll, but also just uh, a hard, hard living, hard lead life um, and also the novel Grace by Natasha Dayan um, which is uh, fantastic as well I haven't seen any movies lately I guess we're sort of out of the movie period of time um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to at some point this summer sitting in a theater and doing that and then I am listening to a ton of music and as ever I am addicted to uh, Jason Isbell and I've been listening to him constantly his album Southeastern from a couple years ago um, is has been on basically heavy rotation for about I don't know three years in my house and then what kind uh, of music is it I don't even know uh, uh, sort of Americana and Sturgill Simpson I'm a, I'm a big Sturgill Simpson's fan right now as well okay. no overlaps with you <laughs> I just read I read tons of comics I'm all about comics what's I mean, great right now uh, you know, I love, um, I love, you know, the obvious stuff like Southern Bastards and things like that, but I, I, you know what I've been loving? I love Vision. I love Tom King's Vision. Um, I think it's spectacular. I'm excited to see what it does on Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I finally read, I hadn't read for, you know, uh, Brian Vaughn's, um, Private Eye. Mm-hmm. I just had never, cause I read the first couple and then the truth was I just forgot to go and download them yeah. cause they're just, mm-hmm. you don't, they're, they're not digital? in a store. Right. Yeah. And so when I go to the store, I know, pick it up, but I just forgot. And so yeah. I just finally bought the hardcover. So I read like half of it because I remembered the digital download and then I forgot. So I, I love that book. I really thought it was really special. Um, what else am I reading? Um, I love Squirrel Girl. Man, I love the crap out of that book. There's a, there's a scene, uh, maybe it was two issues ago, where you know they do Craven the Hunter's van. <laughs> that is with like a painted like, you know, a, a, whoever came up with that bit was like give them a raise. It was spectacular. Um what else am I reading in comics that I love? I just read The Fix. I, the first issue was like a promising, like I'm curious to see where it goes. Um, and then movies, I mean, you know, there hasn't been anything. I really want to see Wiener. I haven't seen that. I, want to see that I too, really yeah. want to see that. But um, I mean, listen, I love Civil War. I, you know, I wish that uh, everyone, every character in, in in the last X-Men movie had 500 more things that they could actually do as opposed to, you know, stand around. Um so, you know, same things in terms of that. Uh, I took my young son to see Deadpool, which is so old now. <laughs> Deadpool but, but, was good. But I, I will like say Deadpool. what I loved about it is that it was the first thing I'd ever done with my son where as we were in the middle of it and as the lights came on in the end, I looked at him and I said, don't tell your mother you were here. <laughs> that was like my first, like, I was like, I'm a father now, right? Because like, I, I, I had no apologies for it. It wasn't like I was shy. I knew exactly what I was sure. taking him to because right. I read Deadpool. Like, and I'm like, I'm like, and like I knew, and I was like, I'm like, watch this. We're going we're gonna, to, you're going to be a man today. Here you go. Um, this is your bar mitzvah. And so my, but my youngest son, I've been on a, a, a just a crazy run of old superhero movies that I've never that I'd seen uh, fifty thousand times as a kid. But I have an eight year old, and he's just at that age. I showed him about it probably six months ago. I finally showed him Tim Burton's Batman, and he was like perfectly age for it mm. right it doesn't really even hold up it's like such a comical thing it almost it, it's it's really like the adam west show for us it's a, it, it's, it's a straight it's my so mom dated adam west you I told for, me that when we first I met i think that, that was i know you that, did tell me that that i knew that i knew um a long why do you think we're working together um 
and so but that's that the movie just is so weird but he loved it and mm-hmm. so suddenly we were like we watched the second one we watched the third one um i'm trying to convince him the fourth one doesn't exist you know like <laughs> but even the third one but um but it's Frankly, so the fascinating second one. right the second one though has michelle pfeiffer in the costume mm, so at yeah. least like you can revisit that you can revisit <laughs> the, the donner superman movie so so i showed him the so i showed him all the donners i haven't shown him the donner cuts because i had him i couldn't wow. do it out of order i had to show right, him the so original right. order absolutely and and then and now we're on we're about to so we've been through everything we've been through um, I'm trying to remember like the ordinary. We've just been on a like a tear of my childhood through film of like what used to take us oh, twenty years to cover right. is now like if if you told me that I was going to go see a movie and there's like you know it's going to have Ant Man and like right. I, I would have lost my mind yeah. right. I mean I could watch. Robert Downey Jr. talked to that kid playing Spider-Man on that on that bedroom. I could watch two hours of just yeah. that. Like, just give me that movie. I'm right. fine. I'm 100 percent in. And and I get to watch my son experience all of it in like a candy store, like gorge yourself way, um, and which is hilarious. And that and and so that's been that takes up a lot of physical time. <laughs> but to revisit it is fascinating because I'm watching it now from like an adult perspective. I remember being you know when Tim Burton did that first Batman, it was like. Holy cow! He's doing the ears. He's going full mm-hmm. pointy ears. He's and I remember like being pissed back then that he did the you know in the first movie the logo was a, a little shift on the bottom and I was like, why is he doing that? But like <laughs> now I watch it from that storytelling standpoint and just watching Jack Nicholson and just being like, you know, and and realizing you know and I was one of those people who was like Michael Keaton's Batman and just realizing he was awesome. Like love Keaton as Absolutely. Batman. Um, and and it's really fun to kind of. There's no excuse except when you have kids to really go back and watch that crap you grew up with. Are you watching all the Supermans like through Nuclear Man? No, no, that okay. doesn't exist in the house. No, okay. but I, but I gave him one and two. I didn't, I didn't go past there because I, I and I edited. I mean, I basically, I you know, I haven't let him watch Man of Steel either because I was like, mm-hmm. I just don't, you know, I love Kevin Costner in the role, but I just never buy Pa Kent saying yeah. let him die. I will. That doesn't exist. Have you checked out the Flash TV show? We love the Flash great. TV show. The Flash TV show, Supergirl in fact, um, Supergirl is great. The Flash TV show is so right. It's a Silver Age comic come to life. And to me, and the fun part is, is my, so I have a 14-year-old and this 8-year-old, and they both sit on, you know, like one side of me. And then we watch the show, and then they're like, who is that dad? Because they know, like, when our man shows up, I'm like, okay, there's a guy named Rex Tyler. There's a robot version of him. There's a so-and-so. He was in the Justice Society. And, like, and like in those moments in between, they know I'm going to, like, download an entire encyclopedia of information to them, which is so fun. So, like, each well, moment. the secret language. Right. right? And they're it, getting to Of course. And, and, but it's bad because I feel like when we grow up on this stuff – part of the fun was you had to decipher the language yourself. Mm-hmm. There was no one to help you. The only guy who I knew was a guy named T.M. Maple who wrote like letters in the backs of the comics, right? Like the, oh no one in my school <laughs> knew read comics. Yeah. I was the only one. And when I had no friends, I had comics, right? Like that's what was there for me. And suddenly like my kids are taught, you know, everybody loves this and I'll, I'll explain everything to you. Like you had to find like one friend at summer camp who maybe could explain <laughs> right. some backstory of some old justice league issue <laughs> who missed. Spoke who spoke, and I remember yeah. being, I remember, uh, I remember being at summer camp once and we, and we got to, um, we were, it was really hot. It was July at camp and we were walking and my parents gave, everyone had a dollar. Like we all have money. My parents gave me a dollar in case we needed to buy anything on a camping trip. God right. knows what, but we wound up stopping. This shows you like Jewish camping, but like we stopped at a Seven Eleven, and we were walking, we walked past the Seven Eleven, and everyone went in and we were dying of thirst and there was um there was a spinner rack of comics and everyone was going and there was a you know big thing of yoohoo and i wanted the yoohoo so badly and the yoohoo was like a buck 
and I saw that there was a Justice League issue, the George Perez Secret Society Earth 2 issue. I think it was like 197. Um, And the third issue was there because it was the summer and it had come out in the summer. And I remember looking and going, I'm dying of thirst. (laughs) And there's the Yoohoo. And there's that Justice League issue I won. What am I going to do? And you better believe I left that 7-Eleven with that comic book. You that's, know? A, that's a dirty, hairy question. Yeah. You're dying I mean, it was, and I was just like, and I, but I left with that comic. And, and that comic was figuring it out and figuring the backstory. And so for my kids to have a translator, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm, uh, I'm not sharpening their muscles. <laughs> like, you got to make your own muscles, right? you got to stay on the floor yourself. You need sure. to meet. Like, They're never going to survive at Comic-Con. That's right. They'll be eaten alive by the real nerds. They'll be the first ones gone. Um, but I will. Say, yeah. So anyway, that's what I'm watching now. So that's um, for me. And obviously, you know, the usual stuff of like Game of Thrones. And we just oh, finished. Yeah. Um, what did we just finish? Oh, you know what? I just it, it took me a little while, but I just finally finished season two of Daredevil, which was fun. Um, although I love the the Punisher was the, obviously stole everything in the whole. Um, and then what else are we watching? And now we're you know what? I haven't watched Breaking Bad season two. I mean Breaking Bad uh, Saul season two. Oh, right. um, and so I'm finally we're just about to start that. I have them all taped in. That's my Perfect. summer project. Are you going to come back to comics? Um, you know, I just was in Marvel. I speak to the DC guys are like my closest friends. You know, Jeff and Dan and those guys. I love them. It's a matter of just finding the thing that I can work on. Um, I would do more comics. It's our kids' books take mm-hmm. up that comic spot and and i love doing those kids book with chris eliopoulos um so i i, I want to do it i always talk to them i know exactly what's going to happen for like you know the next year or two and we try and find spots for me to jump in like when i did the batman 75th anniversary mm-hmm. um so i'll never say never but it's just a matter of trying to wrangle it into the schedule sure. are there characters in in either of these uh for either of these companies that you would love to get i mean listen i still want to do you know, I, listen, I did just, I, I could do Justice League again. I would do, if you said to me, do anything, I would do Justice League again in a heartbeat. Um, and, you know, and I, I'm excited for Brian Hitch's run. I, lo- I love Brian. I love working with him on Batman. Um, I still love the Legion of Superheroes. I still love them. I still love the Teen Titans. I just, those are the characters I love. Hmm. Um, I just love DC team books were it for me. Marvel was always like, I like, you know, the X-Men. I like the Avengers. I, you know, Daredevil just did it for me, mm-hmm. you know, always. Those sing- they, the, the single characters did it more for me there, um, except for Avengers, which I loved. But, you know, again, nothing shocking. Like, those are the things I loved when I was eight, and I yeah. love them now. And I, and I could have written, written Justice League, I felt like, for, you know, you know, how many more issues. But it was just a matter of, like, my editor going, like, you told me you were signing up for four, even though I had signed up for 12. I'm like, I, I meant 12. Uh, you got the email <laughs> wrong. But, you know, I, I would have loved to write that book sure. forever and ever. <laughs> Terrific. Well, guys, congrats on the book. Uh, Thank you. Thanks for being here. No, thanks for finally having me. I appreciate it. It's a good time. Can we also talk for uh, sign off of this? The reason I'm on this show today is because some awesome guy on Twitter was oh, like, yes. "You should have me on." I meant to call him out. We got to call him out. So we, so that guy on Twitter who made this happen. Thank you for making it happen because obviously a pleasure, and we love this stuff. But um, I love that you know, in a strange world, like comics used to be this fringe thing and right you'd meet in like a holiday inn in 1985 and no one was your friend and you'd meet once every couple months my mom months, my right? dad too in holiday inn and, and, and so i used to go to these comic conventions and maybe you'd meet one other person like yourself but i love that we live in a world where this guy on twitter brings us together and lets us make that world that's even very smaller. cool well i can't find it because listen i get a lot of ad mentions <laughs> You're but thank popular. you, guy on Twitter, uh, for bringing us together. <laughs> we owe you. This way, lots of people can claim it. It's their thing now. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. You know what? If you ever come to a signing, come and tell me you cut the line for free. 
The only other person I did that for is a woman who who gave her kidney to my history teacher in 11th grade. I found her on mm-hmm. Facebook. And so if you to cut in line on my signings, you either, um, you either <laughs> introduce me on Twitter or give a body part. And those two things, you can always cut the line. So one is easier than the other. But try and if either. you ever want to come to the front of the line in my signing, just show up. <laughs> Sadly. Uh, thank you guys for being here. Thanks, Pink. Thanks. Appreciate it. Now leaving Nerdist.com.